All right, uh, Children's Church can be dismissed. You guys can make your way on out. And while they're uh, getting out, let me just give you today's sermon title and our text. Today's sermon title is called, What's Love Got to Do With It? And for some of you, that may kind of throw in a a song in your head, and uh, that'll probably be playing throughout the rest of the message. Uh, but uh, it may be surprising once we get into the scripture, what's love got to do with it? Now, hopefully it will make it uh, better understood as we get to the scripture, which we will find in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 1 through 13. So the entirety of that chapter is what we'll be covering this morning. Um, I forgot to say in the announcements, so let me put it in right now. I really want to encourage you to be here Wednesday night. We'll actually be meeting in here in the sanctuary uh, this Wednesday night. We have a young man uh, who is going to come. I'm not sure if his wife will be here or not. Uh, they just had a baby. But uh, he's going to be coming and present his mission uh, to us uh, that they are going to Canada to, to work with the indigenous people in Canada. And uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, what he, he has. And I'm excited to see, you know, young folks getting involved in the ministry. We've got a couple more here this morning that are personal friends of mine that uh, are also headed off to seminary very shortly. And uh, who knows, they, they may come back here uh, in a few years and uh, we just never know what God will do, right? So not that I'm trying to put you in any direction for either of you uh, that are here this morning. All right, so let's pray and uh, then let's just get into God's word. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you have given us. Lord, it is, is indeed an awesome day, and Lord, what a life that you have given us. And I pray, God, that this morning as we study your word, Father, that we would be greatly encouraged, that we would be instructed by your spirit, Lord, that we would learn and be a people that are wiser about who you are and what you require of us. We are grateful this morning, God, that you forgive us for our sins, which are many, that your grace is abundant in our life. We are grateful this morning that you have given us everything that we need in this life for godliness. And we pray, most of all, that Jesus Christ would be high and lifted up and that he would be seen as preeminent in everything that we say. Work your way in our hearts through your word this morning. And we pray that in Christ Jesus' name. And the church said, all right, so our text this morning is really dealing with questions that the church of Corinth had. You remember last week we started and got into the whole, uh, a few issues in, in chapter 7 and covered that entirety of that chapter as well. And we continue this morning uh, that the believers had more questions and Paul was trying to answer the questions they had. And in particular, uh, this morning, the question and answer that he wants to deal with is one of Christian liberty. And like Paul's day, there is often a failure to understand the bounds of Christian liberty. All right, so that's kind of one of those key things this morning as we walk through, that there are bounds to Christian liberty that we have. There are, are often two extremes that we find in churches, and those two extremes are legalism and liberty. One at one end and another at another end. So we kind of want to talk about that a moment before we get into the text, and 
The legalist lives by rules. It's all about the rules. They believe that everything is black and white and there are no gray areas. Everything is good or everything is bad. But here's the problem with that view. There are many areas in the Bible that are not addressed. Right? Uh, let me just give you some, and, and it'll be humorous almost in a sense this morning. Here's some of those legalist ideas that I've seen in the past. Women wearing pants. Well, if that were still the case, oh my goodness, there are a few that are in trouble this morning. Right? Makeup. Women wearing makeup. Dancing. Right? Dancing. Playing cards. Smoking. Drinking. There are a lot of things that it's either black and white for the legalist. And by the way, do you know how a Baptist dances? All right. That's a little extreme. Right? But those, those ideas are, are legalism. Right? They are, they are not found. And that's the problem is when we say it's absolutely you cannot dance. Well, we got a problem with that because the Bible does talk about David dancing, right? Uh, I don't know about you, but I play a little solitaire on occasion. Uh, and, and there would be those who would say that that was sinful. We've already alluded to the fact that there was a day, and I remember the time when if a woman wore pants, oh my goodness, it was a bad, bad thing. Here is the issue with that. The Bible does not specifically address those issues. So that is a gray area, and the legalist would say that, hey, this is my opinion, this is the way it has to be, this is black, this is white. Now, on the other extreme that we have, we have those who really abuse Christian liberty. You see, they would see those same gray areas as a license to do what they want to do because the Scripture does not expressly forbid that. So what they would say is like, hey, the Bible does not really say that I can't go dancing, therefore it is fine for me to go down to Billy Bob's, and unless you were from, you know, Texas, you would know where that was at, but that was a dance hall there and say, man, I'm just going to go down there and do the boot scooting boogie, and, and because God doesn't say anything that I can't do that. Uh, they would say that I can wear anything, I can do whatever I want, as long as the Bible does not expressly forbid that. And that seems to be part of the problem that the church was having. There were questions on that, and Paul really brings in a principle that is going to override both the legalist and those who thought they had a license to do whatever they wanted to do. And that principle is this, and where we get our title, what's love got to do with it? And can I tell you this morning, dear brothers and sisters, that love has everything to do with it. So that's what we want to kind of break apart this morning. And Paul brings this principle of love out that balances both the legalist and those that think that liberty has no bounds. Love, when it is placed first, is a cure for building up and not tearing down. And here's another key phrase to keep in mind, the weaker brother. We will see a principle established, a problem identified, 
and a practice, or pardon me, a privilege sacrifice. Three things, principle established, a problem identified, and a privilege sacrificed. And we find the first point, a principle established in verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's read those together and then we'll kind of go back and unpack a couple of things out of that. It says, now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Well, let's just talk about a few things out of there. And again, a principle that Paul is establishing right away. And the first thing that he does, he wants to confirm that there is a benefit to knowledge. He says again, now as touching these things, talking about idols, he says, we know that we have knowledge. So he is including them of this group, and evidently there was a group that came and says, listen, here's an issue. We know about idols, and we know about meats, and, and, and so we have a good understanding, Paul, of these things, is what they were telling him. They were understanding, and Paul is acknowledging to them that knowledge breaks the chains of bondage. For those who had formerly offered to sacrifices and idols, that knowledge of the newness of Christ, they understood that, that, that in Christ that he had broken the bonds that they once had to idolatry. And he's saying, that's a good thing. Knowledge is a, a good thing. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God's people perish for a lack of what? Knowledge. I, I have said it many times from this pulpit, and God willing, if, if I'm back here next Sunday or next week, it's one of the things that we must have right thinking, and the only way that you and I have right thinking is we, if we really get our minds in tune with what the Scripture says. And the problem is that so many of God's people don't know what the Scriptures say. And that was part of the dilemma here. But not only part of the dilemma is that he's saying, listen, here's this principle established. He's saying that knowledge is a good thing. But the second thing that he brings out and instructs them is that knowledge can be an issue of pride. You see, not only can it be a problem of causing or a good thing of setting people free, but knowledge can also be an issue of pride. It, it's hard to kind of see how it reads in here, but when you really study this out, Paul is almost kind of like giving them a little bit of a rebuke, and it's like he's saying, oh yeah, I get it. We all got it. We all understand. And, and because he says, really what they were coming in, they were saying, hey Paul, we can do whatever we want to because we understand, right? Now these other folks, they just don't understand. And Paul's saying, oh yeah. Yeah, we all understand, don't we? We all got it. Now, look to your neighbor left and right and saying, we ain't all got it. Right? And if you think you got it, Paul's going to say, you ain't got it. Paul made it very clear that he was not there yet. I've been, I've been a follower of Christ for 40-some years, and I will tell you, the, the, the greater that journey becomes in distance, the more I understand of how much I really don't understand. Because God is an awesome, immense God. And just when I think I've got it figured out, I find out I really don't. Because he's always teaching me something new. And that's what Paul was trying to get across. The issue of pride was an ongoing and prominent problem 
with this church. Paul makes it clear that to these believers that if they think they have a handle on knowledge, they really don't understand anything at all. Look at verse 2. It says, And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing. It's a rebuke. He said, if you think you got it figured out, you don't, you don't really know anything. Not at all. And so it was an issue of pride that they had, and he was trying to establish that in their minds. And then the third thing is this, that Paul establishes a principle that balances out knowledge, and that knowledge is love. That principle is love. Go back to verse 1, and the last very part of that verse is, listen, knowledge puffs up, right? And, and we talked about that earlier in another sermon. That idea of puffing up is a prideful thing. You know, it's just kind of blowing yourself up uh, to make yourself see, uh, seem bigger and greater than you really are. That's what pride does. And that is what pride had done to this group of believers that was coming to Paul and saying, hey, listen, we have knowledge. We have knowledge about idols and we have knowledge about meat. Right? And we're to discuss more of that. And Paul wants to establish right away, he says, listen, knowledge puffs up. And can I say this morning, you can be the most knowledgeable person about what the Scripture says, but if you don't have a heart of love in that knowledge, all you are is one big, puffed up, prideful person. And Paul's trying to get that across to his congregation. And there are people that know a lot about the Bible but they don't have an ounce of love in them. And we wonder sometimes why the Christian message is sometimes null and void when we go and try and share the love of Christ. He says, listen, the principle is love. And that principle is based off of verse 3 where he says, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. Listen, if we really have a heart for God, if we really love God, the Bible says, number one, we do what he says. And the only way that you and I really have any love at all is because God has granted us that ability to love. Can I get an amen? amen? So when we talk about this principle, we need to understand it's all because of God. Let me tell you a few things that God, uh, love will do. Love builds up. It does not tear down. Love is always looking for ways to, to edify, to build somebody up. That is what love does. Love does not look for the, the chinks in the armor. Listen, if, if you look at me long, well, you don't even have to look long at me. If you look at me at all, you will find that there are plenty of flaws in my life. But I am so appreciative of people who will come along and try and encourage me in things rather than point out all the flaws that I have. Because that's somebody I can say, that person loves me. That person sees that. You know, speaking of moms this morning, my goodness, they see the, the you know, nasty little snot-nosed kids that they raise, and yet they love them, and they're always building them up. They see them for all the chinks that they have, for all the faults that they have, and yet they love them and they build them up. That is what it is to be in the Christian life. You and I, in this principle of knowledge, we're to use the knowledge that we have to build others up, not to tear them down. Now, really... When I talked about legalists, the message is not for legalists. The message is for those who would use their knowledge in abuse of the liberty Christ has given them. Second thing that this principle does, 
Love is based on who God is in our relationship to Him. Knowing that we have a relationship with Him should encourage us always, should drive us to want to please Him. As a matter of fact, if there is anything in the Christian life that, that it should be true in, our, in us, is that we want to please Him. If you want to know what, what is my purpose in life, please Him. Please God. That's a demonstration of your love. And then that love really begins to, something supernatural begins to transpire and it takes on a whole new meaning. Anything done without love is absolutely nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, you know, as we go through these chapters and we finally get to chapter 13, and, and I know everybody likes to use chapter 13 as the, as the chapter of love, but what we need to understand at the same time is Paul was absolutely, actually rebuking the, the Corinthians in that chapter. Because they were saying, he says, listen, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you speak with the tongues of angels. It doesn't matter if, if you do all these. It doesn't matter if you burn yourself. You're burned. He says, if you don't do it in love, you're nothing more than a, just a gong sounding. Nothing. And, and so he wants to establish right off as he breaks this question down and answering it and saying, here is the principle that I want you to grab. A principle is love. We must do everything out of love. And then the second thing that he does is he identifies the problem. And we find that the problem is identified in verses 4 through 12. And let's take a look there. It says, As concerning, therefore, eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there is none other but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many. But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom we, uh, oh, excuse me, by whom are all things, and we by him. How be it? There is not in every man the knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, neither. For neither if we eat are we better, neither if we eat not are we worse. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if a man see thee which has knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, listen to this, you sin against Christ. Paul wants to identify the problem, and we're going to break this identifying the problem down into three separate areas. And the first area is a superior attitude. You see, there was this group that had knowledge, and they, they had a superior attitude. They understood that there was only one God. They had come to a place, and, and I would hope all of us understand this, but I will tell you that it's, it's hard for us in America to grab these things, right? Because we kind of get it. 
But I have been in cultures to where there is the understanding that, that there, they think there are many gods, right? They, they have seen spiritual activity even in those things. But for the mature Christian, they understand, listen, God is sovereign. Can I get an amen? He reigns over everything. We studied in Colossians that by him and through him and for him, all things were made and all things consist through Christ. So there were those who understood that, but there were those who did not. There were those, when we look at this, there were those that knew what they ate and did not eat had no impact whatsoever on their relationship with God. Now, by the way, periodically I will see if some crazy diet come out and saying, hey, this is the Old Testament diet or, you know, whatever. Listen, can I tell you what? You eat what you want to eat, right? It's not going to affect your relationship with God. Now, it might reflect your relationship with Pepsid, right? But it's not going to have a your a effect on the relationship with God Almighty. You can eat whatever you want to eat. It's what he was saying. God makes it very clear. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, there were periods to where they said, hey, don't do that. And that is gonna, that's going to kind of play into where we're at. But there were those who realized, saying, one God, I know there's only one God. I know he's the one that reigns over everything. I know that what I eat really does not have any impact or effect on my relationship with God. But there were others who didn't quite understand that, and we'll get into that in a moment. So just kind of keep that in mind. You say, well, well Jim, I mean, my goodness, what do those things have to do with us? Well, I'll, I'll try to give us some practical application as we go along. In that problem identified, there were those that believed that their understanding to give them liberty to do whatever they wanted to. And here's the crux of the problem. Because they said, listen, because I know that there's one God, and I know that whatever I eat really has no relationship on my relationship with God, that I'm free to do whatever I want to do. There were those then who also in this problem identified with a superior attitude. There were those who looked down on those who did not have the same understanding of freedom that they did. In other words, they were looking at this group of people who were offended by them eating meat offered unto idols and saying, well, you know, that's their problem. I've got knowledge. I know who God is. I know that this doesn't have any relationship on me. And I can tell you that this impacts the church today, even as it did then. Because there are those today who would say, I've got knowledge, and, and we'll just go back to this. Hey, you know what? Ann and I were talking about it, that uh, one of the things that we don't see as often anymore is that we don't see a lot of weddings performed in churches anymore. And a lot of the times it's because, you know, I think people want to go and have a dance afterwards. Now, I'm going to shock you. I'm going to go ahead and give you a chance to take a breath and go, I did not know he thought that, all right? But let me just tell you that if somebody wants to go have a dance after a wedding, I'm okay with that. Oh, I can tell that this is like he is. Yeah, you know why? Because the Bible doesn't say yes or no on that. Right? Now, if you want to be a Baptist and dance like that on the side, that's fine. But if you want to grab your sweetheart and do a little waltz, that's fine too. Oh, man, am I getting in, am I getting in like thin ice? <laughs> I mean, because it got like... I mean, I thought I heard I heard like little cricket legs rubbing together, you know. Cheer, 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 cheer. 
I'm just telling you that, that we have to be careful that, that our understanding of things. Now, here's the deal. Let me just put it, and I'll give a couple of our young men uh, that are stepping off into ministries a concept on this. I will know this, right? That whether I wear a suit when I preach has no impact on my relationship with God. So whether I'm wearing, as I am today, Wranglers and a dress shirt, or whether I'm in a three-piece suit, that has no relationship on my uh, ability to, to commune with the Almighty God. Because I know there's one God, and I know that God is not preferable over three-piece suits or somebody in jeans. But here is where the problem comes. When I look at it in a superior fashion and say, because I am so full of knowledge about that, that I would go into a church that is used to wearing suits and say, because I know that God doesn't care, I'm just going to come in here in my jeans and shirt at the potential of offending that church. Does that make sense? You see, that's Christian liberty taken out of place. It has nothing to do with the relationship. God is sovereign. God knows all. And yet, if I come in and use that freedom, because I know that I'm free to do that, and take the risk of offending people, that's when it becomes an issue. Okay? That is what Paul is identified as a problem with a superior attitude in the understanding of the Scriptures. And then there was also an inferior understanding. Right? There was an inferior understanding, and that understanding was those who had recently been saved out of the pagan culture. You see, part of what we don't get here, we don't, we don't go down to the market and understand that some of the meat in the market there was used in a pagan ritual where they would sacrifice the animal, and then the priest would take a lot of that meat, and then they would burn that or whatever, and then they would take the remaining meat, they would take it down to the market, and they would sell it so that they had some extra money. Now, the problem with that, that pagan coming out of that society is that they, they didn't want to be associated in any way with that former life that they had had. And, and, and they were afraid of doing that. And they said that if they did that, that it would somehow impact the way that their relationship was, was with God. They felt that if they even ate that meat, even unknowingly, that somehow their relationship with God would be impacted. Some of them were so afraid that if they did anything close to that, that they would be drawn back into that culture. Their understanding was inferior. Nonetheless, it didn't mean that it wasn't real. They didn't fully understand the idea that idols are nothing. I spoke with a missionary one time who was in the Far East, and he said one of the greatest things, one of the greatest uh, uh, obstacles to overcome is that uh, they will, you know, we will have people that will want to accept Christ. They hear the message and they say, I want to be set free from my sin. And yet they still are afraid and, and think they need to still do things with idols so that those idols, you know, those gods won't be after them. Because they haven't fully understood the trust of Christ. Now in America we go, well that's silly. Is it really? Is it? Because we have people in this country that when they get saved, they've still got a lot of old ties to the back and they are fearful 
of those very same things pulling them back in. Because they were idols. Fearful of those idols. Grabbing them and pulling them back into a life that they didn't want to be a part of anymore. You see, their understanding was inferior that Christ is able to set us free from everything. And even though those things were not wrong to do, their conscience would condemn them. And that became an issue of sin for them. I've told you several times about when we were uh, on a mission trip and many of the, the men over there smoked cigarettes, right? Uh, Christian men. By the way, everybody go, oh man, I can't believe that. Well, yeah, you need to understand, we, again, we, we try to Americanize things so much, right? And so one of the things, and, and I know Austin's going to, he, he knows exactly what I'm talking about, because you went, right, same place, and... and so one of the things that, that I would do when they would offer me a cigarette, because it was a cultural thing of saying, hey, you know, hey, brother, here's a cigarette, right? Well, I'd take this cigarette and I'd stick it behind my ear. And the reason I did is because if I smoked the cigarette, I felt that, you know, not, not even then, if, you know, number one, I'd probably cough and gag. But I was trying to find a compromise of not offending my brother, who is the weaker brother, but at the same, not, same time, not offending my conscience, which has then become a sin for me. Right? You understand? And, and so there was their problem. They were not concerned about the weaker brother, that, that one that thought that they were superior. The inferior one did not understand, and he was afraid that if he did anything, that went against his conscience, and because even though it wasn't wrong, because they went against their conscience, it became an issue of sin for them. And we know that God gives us a conscience to keep us in bounds. Amen? But be careful, because a conscience can get seared. So, there was that inferior understanding, and then there was this unacceptable behavior. You see, they had an unacceptable behavior, not the weaker brother, but that one who was taking a license in liberty, even though it was not wrong. And Paul makes it clear, he says, listen, an unacceptable behavior is this, don't cause your brother to stumble. Don't do it. And I think, man, wouldn't it be great if God's people would just take a look around them and say, and listen, I may have Christian liberty to do a lot of different things, but if it causes somebody to stumble, I really need to take a long, hard look at that and saying, am I acting in love or am I acting in self-interest? And Paul makes it clear saying, don't cause that brother to stumble. Don't give him an opportunity that it would cause him to sin against his conscience. And, and the question was, you know, that there were some who were going to eat, you know, at places, and, and some of the, uh, those that believed and they had the liberty to do so would even go to some of the pagan feasts and eat with them because they knew it. The meat had nothing to do with it. They certainly had no problem going and buying meat in the market and coming home and, and eating the problem was is they weren't giving any consideration to those in their church body who were struggling over those issues. Let me just give you one here, another one that, that may shock you. And, and, I, and I, I'm careful in this, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll put a caveat on it. You may have the freedom to drink wine, but you be, better be careful that you don't cause an alcoholic to stumble. 
You see the principle? The Bible says, you, you, there's nothing that says you can't drink. The Bible says don't get drunk. But here's, here's the, here is the overriding principle to all of that. If somebody who has been an alcoholic and they see you doing that and they say, hey, it's cool, I can do that, then they go and do it and right back they're an alcoholic again. Can I tell you this? The Bible says that one in ten people that ever take a drink will become an alcoholic. You see, there's, there's liberty. But there's something that overrides liberty, and that's love. And the unacceptable behavior is as they thought, well, because I have this liberty, I am free to do whatever I want to do. You know? Get over yourself. That's what they were thinking with the weaker brother. Get with it, man. Figure it out. Not take into account where that weaker brother was at. And Paul says, don't, don't do that. And he reminds him, he says, listen, Christ paid the price for that person's freedom. That's an amazing thing. When, he, when you look at that, how that, he says in verse 11, he says, And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? In other words, you got the freedom, but you're not going to consider that it's causing the weaker brother a, 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 a stumbling place, a problem where they're fulfilling their calling and faith. He says, Christ died for them. Man, if God's people would just take a look sometimes at the silliness that goes on inside of churches. And focus more on what Christ has done than what a brother or sister is doing. Can I get an amen? amen. Causing him to sin is a sin against Christ. That's what he says. So in the freedom that some would have and say, well, I'm free to do whatever I want to, you cause that person to sin, and in the process of the freedom that we think that we have, we are actually sinning against the very Christ that died to save them and us. It's an unacceptable behavior. The very last thing we find in verse 13, and there's a privilege sacrificed. Look at that verse. Paul says, wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. What's he saying there? Paul makes it clear that he is willing never to eat meat again if it caused his weaker brother to stumble. Our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ should always take precedence over our Christian liberty. Let me just give you a, a guideline that was taken from a commentary that I read concerning advice on our Christian liberty. And it says this, In deciding about whether or not to participate in any behavior that is doubtful, the following principles make a good checklist to follow. We should ask ourselves these questions anytime. And, and again, folks, listen. If it is not expressly forbidden in the scriptures, then there's liberty there, right? 
But at the same time, we want to balance that and use this principle of love. So, excess. Is the activity or habit necessary, or is it merely an extra that is not really important? Is it perhaps only an encumbrance that we should willy, willingly give up? And you can write down Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 as a text for that. So when we say that we have Christian liberty, we ought to be asking ourselves, is this an excess in my life? Do I really need this in my life? Or is it something that I can willfully give up because it really has no impact on me if I do or I don't do it? What I don't want to do is if that's the category and I know that it's offensive to somebody else, I certainly need to pull myself back from that. All right. Now, I'll put a caveat on that. There are times that we're, keep in mind, where you're at at that moment, right? So if I'm out with somebody and they say, you know, hey, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't agree with that. You know what? It, I can pull back from it. But it doesn't mean that I don't have to pull back from it every single time. But certainly around them, I need to pull back from that. Does that make sense? Because I don't want to make them stumble. So is it excess? The next thing, is it expedient? All, he says this, uh, the scripture says, all things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are profitable or expedient. Is it what I want to do, or is what I want to do helpful and useful, or is it only desirable? In other words, what am I doing? Is, it, is there a benefit to that? Is it helping me in any way? Is it helping somebody else in any way? Or is it just something that I want to do? We, we, are, we live, and, and not just now, folks, because this is what Paul was dealing with in his day. Can I just tell you that one of the problems of the fall is we as a people are selfish. We want to fulfill ourselves. It is a battle, right? It is a battle that we will always fight, that we are trying to put to death ourselves in order that we can do things for others to build them up and lift them up. So we need to ask ourselves, is it expedient? Is it good? Is there something that's going to be good there? Are we setting the right example for others, especially for weaker brothers and sisters? If we emulate Christ, others will be able to emulate us to follow our example. So when you have this idea that I'm free to do whatever I want to, you should ask yourself, is it really an example? Is, is this an example that I would want somebody else to follow? Because ideally what we would want to do is somebody would follow us because we're following Christ. And really that is, by the way, part of the whole discipleship process is as we're discipling somebody younger, we're having them look at us as we follow Christ and slowly, just like John says, I must decrease and he must increase. But are we living a life that is worth following? We ought to ask ourselves that. Parents just certainly ask themselves one thing to hear it from the pulpit is another thing when our kids and our grandchildren see it lived out in the lives of their parents and grandparents. If it's only preached from the pulpit but not lived in the lives of those who are closest to us, then it really has very little effect. Evangelism. Is my testimony going to be helped or hindered? Will unbelievers be drawn to Christ or turned away from him by what I'm doing? 
would help me to conduct myself, quote, with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5. You will remember last week, and I put it in the newsletter, there will be a point in every one of our lives that we'll read the scriptures for the last time. We'll open our Bible for the last time. We'll read the scripture for the last time. There will be a time that we'll be in the church service the last time. There will be a time that we sing our last praise here on this earth. There will be a last time that we share Christ with somebody. And when it really comes down to the very end, the question will be, how was my life as an evangelist? Because if you're a follower of Christ, let me give us one more eye-opening statement from a few weeks ago. Your mission in life is to make known Jesus Christ to the world around you. That is your purpose in life. That is the only reason that we are here. Because we're headed for a new heaven and a new earth, and we're called to be His ambassadors here. So, does our liberty help or hinder that process of evangelism, edification? Will I be built up and matured in Christ? Will I become spiritually stronger? All things are lawful, but not all things edify. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 23. In other words, hey, whatever, I, 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 things are lawful for me as a Christian. I understand that Christ has nailed sin to the cross. I understand that he is the fulfillment of the law, and I am complete in him. And while I am free, it doesn't mean that everything is good for building myself up or others. And finally, exaltation. Will the Lord be lifted up and glorified in what I do? God's glory and exaltation should be the supreme purpose behind everything we do. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All. You see, that was the problem in that church, is there were those that wanted to take their Christian liberties for granted wanted to use them in excess, and they weren't really thinking about the greater cause and call in the life of a Christian. And saying, is it done in love? And is it done for the purpose of building others up? Is it done for the opportunity of making known Christ? I was um, this week and out of the office a couple of days and uh, was involved in a great privilege, and this is one of those things I had Christian liberty for. Uh, nothing compromising, so don't worry. You don't have to go and worry about whether your pastor was doing anything he shouldn't be doing. But I just want to get a point across, something I would normally never do, and that's interviews. But I was picked, along with another Christian brother who's a professor at JSU, to be Alabama's veteran and uh, graphic designer for a state or a United States-wide, nationwide project. Spent two days sitting down in interviews, and going into the whole thing, we, we both looked at it because the Christa, my brother is also a Christian, and we had such an opportunity. I don't know what they'll think about my interviews as a veteran, but I'm going to tell you what, they sure heard a whole lot about Jesus Christ. 
And I don't know how much of that they'll edit out, but there was a, a group of people that were surrounding us doing filming and asking questions and talking. And over and over and over, we just called and talked about the high calling of Jesus Christ in our lives. And then how that as a veteran, the only thing, the only way that anything makes sense is because there's an eternal perspective. And really encourage them to say, and really, the only reason anything makes sense is because of Christ Jesus. You see, everything we do, we ought to be asking ourselves, how is this going to benefit the overall call of Christ? So whether you get hung up in the gray areas of saying this is black and white, no, or whether you get caught up in the gray areas of because Scripture doesn't expressly forbid it, can I just say that the principle that overrides all of that should be a love for Jesus Christ and a great desire to see Him glorified and not tear anybody down. All right. Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We pray, God, that you would take your word and by your spirit that you fill the gaps of your stumbling messenger. That you do the things that only you are able to do. And God, that you change us from a people being self-focused to being Christ-focused. God, that we're not so concerned about what pleases us, but God, we would be concerned about what pleases you. We trust you, O oh God, to do that very work in our lives, and we're so grateful for the grace that you have given us, Lord. We love you. We see what you're doing. We acknowledge, God, that you're moving in the midst of this congregation and doing things that you and you alone, O oh God, will get the credit for. We pray, God, that we would be careful, O oh Lord, so careful, to make sure that you really are the one that gets the glory for it. And we pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. And the church said,